messenger in Bethlehem. We know what. We know that that's part of the Christian story. What I want to remind you of, or perhaps if you're not a Christ follower or new to church, what I want to show you today for perhaps the first time is why. We know what Christmas is, but we need to ask why. We need to ask why did Jesus come into our world? Like, why is that even a thing? Like, did you ever stop to wonder why do we celebrate God coming in the flesh as a baby, being born in a manger? What does it all mean? And to help us answer that question today, we're going to turn to the scriptures. We're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 to 24. All of today's notes are in the Bible app by you version. Click on uh, more, find events, find Bible Church Dublin, and all of today's notes are there uh, for you. And in, 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 in every one of the Gospels, there's this kind of retelling of how Jesus came into the world. And in Matthew's Gospel, he starts off, verses 1 to 17, with a genealogy. And a genealogy is like a family tree. Matthew is explaining, and he's going to great length to show how Jesus was a legitimate person with a legitimate history. He wasn't just some made-up dude. Later on, the book of Luke, Luke, who explained last week, never personally met Jesus, but was a qualified historian and doctor. He also opens his account of Jesus' birth with a genealogy. A genealogy was a way of proving someone's identity in the first century. So Matthew goes to the length of, of proving Jesus' place in his family history. And then in verse 18 says, this is how the Navitas, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. The word Messiah was a Hebrew word that simply means Savior, okay? This is how the birth of Jesus, the Savior, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, the one towards whom all the Jewish people were looking, came about. His mother Mary, we're told, was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, understand that in first century Judaism, and for much of, of, of history, Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish history, a marriage process uh, was made up of two parts. There was this kind of betrothal, this kind of like arranged setup where two families would come together and one family would offer up a son and one family would offer up a daughter and they'd agree terms. And that couple would be, I suppose to put it in modern day language, they would be engaged, okay? They'd be engaged and they would be in what's called the betrothal phase. The son would then go back to his father's house and begin the preparation of creating a space, finding a property, getting a job, doing all he needed to do to be able to care of the wife that he was going to have. And then at the end of the betrothal phase, there was a ceremony where the marriage actually took place and then they consummated that marriage. And legally speaking, in Jewish culture, that couple were fully married. Now, here's the difference. In our culture, when we propose to someone, okay, it's a proposal. It's like, it's like an offer. It's like, listen, if you're not busy for the rest of your life and you don't have better choices... You know, you can help a fella out here. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think it's part of what makes proposing uh, so terrifying, especially for guys. Because it's like, the, you, know, and, you know, guys like to be tough and strong and confident and fat-headed all the time. But really, guys deep down are little boys who are cowards. And the one thing that guys face the most is rejection. Men fear rejection. Whether it's rejection from a father, a leader, a coach, or especially a girl that he likes. And so when a man finds the courage to, and let me just say this guys, let's not lose certain traditions, yeah? Like I'm all about progressive society and growing and getting better. But let me tell you something, there's something about a man getting on his knee and asking a woman's hand in marriage. That is just right. 
It's just right. This whole thing of like sitting down on the couch with your missus watching a TV show thinking, you know what, maybe we should get married. It's nonsense. If you really love her, get down on one knee. Risk everything. Put it all out there. Like, I mean, yes, you might be rejected, but at the same time, she might say yes. That's risk-reward. I remember many, 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 many years ago when I got engaged, you guys don't know this, but I actually got engaged when I was 17. And that didn't work. And then I, no, no, it did work. I, I got engaged when I was 17, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I had to really help my chances. You know what I'm saying? Like I, this wasn't enough. So, you know, I, I, I was playing rugby in Paris on a tour there, and when I was there, I went shopping. I bought this beautiful dress and matching earrings and a pair of shoes. I came home, I gave them to my girlfriend at the time, now my wife Ludmila, and I said, we're going to go to this nice restaurant, went to this really fancy restaurant, they served kangaroo, everybody. You know you're in a fancy restaurant, which is wonderful, but you couldn't eat the thing because it kept skipping all over the plate. <laughs> and uh, so we had kangaroo, and I'd never heard of a thing called death by chocolate, I don't know if it was a metaphor or a way of euthanasia, but we had it anyway. And then I said, let's go for a romantic walk. So we went on this romantic walk, and it was beautiful, the stars. And, and, you know, the whole time I'm, like, sweaty. And practically, it's like I'd come out of a river. I was so sweaty, and this ring in my pocket, and, you know, and what should I do? And I, I, had, I had picked four spots along the walk that if spot one failed, you know, DEFCON 2, you know what I'm saying? If DEFCON 2 failed, and so I had this plan and came to spot one and checking it out. <clears throat> Like, come on, Jamie, we're talking. Oh, yeah, lovely. No, oh, look at the stars. Spot two, chickened out. Spot three. Eventually, the last spot was a bridge in my hometown. I thought, man, it's now or never. Either I'm crossing over this bridge as an engaged person or as a single man, but I have to make the ask now. So, right there in the middle of town, 10 o'clock at night in my hometown, got down on one knee, and I asked, Love of my life, would you marry me? And she said, Nothing. Women, why did you do this to us? She did this thing that girls do. <gasps> like, no. <gasps> How dare you? I mean, what's going to come out of your mouth? It's like, we're like, Aah! And she started crying. And I went, oh my gosh, I just ruined this poor girl's world. And eventually I'm there and she's crying. She says, yes. Yes, Absolutely. I'm a very, very fortunate man. And a year later, when I was 18, this is you guys, some of you don't know my story. My, <laughs> when I finished my leaving cert, okay, that summer in August, I got my leaving cert results on a Tuesday, got baptized on a Wednesday, and I got married on a Thursday. You might call that a busy week. Yeah, come on. And 17 years later, uh, sh uh, she's very happy. I can tell you, she's not here to say anything out different. So she's very, very happy with the way things. She's so blessed. She's so fortunate. She's so lucky. I mean, what a blessing these 17 years have been. And she'll never know after these things. The point is, is that in our culture, when you propose someone, it's a proposal. It's, it's an if, it's a maybe. You're not really married. But in Jewish culture, when someone was pledged, when they were betrothed, they actually were legally married. The marriage had already happened. It wasn't fully fulfilled, but it already happened. Now, one of the worst things that could happen to a woman in this kind of historical context during this betrothal phase was if they were accused of or proven to have had an affair. Because in the Old 
times in most of history, if a woman, as a married woman, but especially as someone who was engaged, was found to have committed adultery and betrayed the contract agreement of two families, the price for that betrayal was death. That poor person would end up being executed. Different cultures, different ways of doing it. For Jews, it was stoning. And what happens in the story, at the beginning of the story of Jesus, is controversy. And there's, and there's difficulty. And there's strife. And that isn't accidental because I think that sometimes we can, we can have this picture of a perfect porcelain Swedish Jesus who's blonde with blue eyes. He's got feminine features. He's very calm and very perfect. And, and we, we look at this kind of version of Jesus. We think, how can I relate to a Jesus like that, like I'm a mess, I'm a disaster. There's, my life is, 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 is characterized by problems and I'm always screwing up and there's always a difficulty and always a tension and there's always a controversy. And I think it's so interesting and fitting that the Christmas message doesn't begin with perfection. It begins with family disaster. It begins with controversy. Because what we find out is that uh, before they came together, that is to set together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a little red flag moment. Here's a question I want to ask you. If you were proposed to marry someone and they were found to be pregnant and it wasn't yours, here's my question. What would that person have to do to convince you that it was God's fault? I mean... What would they talk about red flag? Like, what would they have to do to convince you? No, 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 no. I know what it looks like. I know how it seems, but actually, I am pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And you're going, but he's a spirit. How does that even work? I mean, come on, for goodness' sake. Well, chances are, conversation wouldn't change your mind. Chances are, all of Mary's friends coming and backing up and validating the story wouldn't be enough either. Chances are tears and excuses and sorries and forgive me's wouldn't be enough, right? You'd need something pretty heavy, Judy, to convince you otherwise. The same was true of Joseph. Now, Joseph had the right to publicly disgrace Mary and cause her to be publicly tried and possibly even killed. But we're told because Joseph, her husband, no, it's not fiancé, husband, was faithful to the law, meaning, this is Jewish expression for, because he was someone who feared God. He had a reverence for God. He had a respect for God. Because he was someone who understood the redemptive heart of God, rather than publicly shaming and disgracing her and leading to her execution, he did not want to expose her, but instead he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I mean, so far, so good. I mean, there's this woman, she's engaged, she got pregnant, she said it was God, how weird is that? The dude's like, no, thank you, but he's a good dude. He says, I'm not going to take advantage or take my anger out on you. I'm going to, because of my respect and reverence for God, I'm going to do this quietly and in doing so protect you. And all seems to make sense until this next verse, verse 20, which I think is interesting because Joseph is in a very difficult place, right? He's in a very stressful place. He's just found out the, the woman he's about to be married to, the woman, in fact, he is married to, about to be fully married to, is now pregnant. And sometimes when we face the most stressful things in our lives, the best thing we can do is go to sleep. Like, let's not underestimate the spirituality of a good old-fashioned nap. And so as Joseph, he's considering this, he's pondering this, We're told that he fell asleep and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, time out. 
Because again, when we see angels portrayed in modern culture, they're usually young Swedish people. Again, what's with the Swedes? Blonde hair, blue eyes, feminine features, wearing white gowns with fluttery butterfly wings. I mean, all very cute. And you're thinking, well, if an angel like that appeared in my bedroom at night time, I'd be asking myself the question, is it an angel or a tooth fairy? Like, it's very hard to distinguish the difference looking at them. But when you study how the Bible actually describes angels, angels are terrifying beings. Every single time an angel turns up in Scripture, the immediate response of everyone is, they were terrified. They were terrified to the point of believing they would die just looking at these creatures. Let me tell you something. You don't want an angel to appear in your bedroom at night. It's less like Teresa the Tooth Fairy and more like the worst nightmare you can imagine. These are, these are awesome creatures. And because an angel shows up, it tells that God is doing something significant. This angel is a messenger, and this messenger tells Joseph, Joseph, son of David. The first thing he does is reminds Joseph who, who, who he is and where he's come from. He says, do not be afraid to take home Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so it's this red flag moment. It's like, man, what would it take for you to believe that your spouse is in fact pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Well, if an angel turned up in your room at night, that would be pretty convincing. I'm not sure that Joseph believed all this or that he understood all this, but what we are told is that he had enough faith and trust in God to go along with it anyway. Now again, this is what a lot of people push back and say, yeah, this is why I can't embrace Christianity. Like, really? Like God got a woman pregnant? I mean, how is that even possible? And the truth is, those who are skeptics watching, pushing back, it's not that impossible. Like in, in nature, there's all sorts of examples of where things can be impregnated without having had intercourse with the opposite sex. Plus the fact, if you believe in the scripture and you believe that God created the world, volcanoes, oceans, planets, galaxies, the sun, and if he is the God that indeed sent his son to die on a cross and then raised him from the dead, then really getting a virgin pregnant is very low in the pecking order of God's abilities. Like, we got bigger fish to fry. Like, either he's the God of the universe, or he's not. And if he is, and somehow, miraculously, this event did take place. But again, Matthew is telling us, it's knowing they'll be pushed back, because either Matthew's insane, and starts his gospel. Like, think about this. He's the author of this book. He wants his book to show the world the truth about Jesus. The worst way you can start a TV show, a song, a book, a poem, a business, is by giving everybody something that seems so ridiculous that discredits, discredits it immediately. Either Matthew's completely mad, or this is exactly what happened. I think that's the choice for us, those who are Christians. Either we put our trust that God could do this, and God did in fact do this, because he is the God that created everything else, and the pecking order is very small, or he's not. And if he's not, then he's not worth paying attention to. Because if God can't cause a woman to have a baby after creating all of humanity, he's probably not a God worth following, is he? And the point is, Joseph was facing the most difficult decision of his life. 
More than likely at this point, him and Mary were teenagers. Most betrothals happened at a teenage age. So they could have been anywhere from 14 to 20. They're in that kind of age bracket. So I'm imagining, you know, we don't know Joseph's upbringing, but we could probably guess that this is probably the most difficult decision that he ever had to make in his life. And something really interesting comes from the text that should encourage us because maybe right now you're facing some difficult decisions. Maybe right now you're facing some family tension. Maybe right now you're facing some, something that happened to you, a betrayal that happened to you, that caused you pain, something that, re, that God is leading you into forgiveness. And you know the relationship cannot function unless you totally and completely forgive that person. And you're a little bit lost, a little bit confused, a little bit uncertain, facing this difficult decision. And what we find in the text is that when we seek God, this is so crucial because this is so much part of the Christmas story, that when we seek God, we're told that we will find him. And more than just finding him, because God isn't hiding, we are. We have to seek God because he's hiding. We have to seek God because we're hiding. And when we seek God, we find him. And God promises, promises to guide us. And I think one of the most underrated things that we need right now in our culture, in our marriages, in our business decisions, in our lifestyle choices, in our planning, in our future, is we need guidance. We need someone to help us. And I think it's just so unfortunate that that's a huge part of the Christmas story that has been lost. Most of you have heard of the three wise men, right? The three magi. Uh, and, you know, you know the song, We Three Kings, come on. You guys grew up with it, and we sing it in carols. And in, in a typical manger scene, we have these three kings, which, by the way, from an accuracy point of view, there's a couple of things you may not have thought of before. Number one, by the time the Magi found Jesus, he was at least two years old, so they weren't the manger. And two, we're not told there was three of them. We're told they brought three types of gift. There could have been 30 of them. We don't know. But we get the idea. Some wise men from the east saw what? Saw a star. And they were guided from the east, from ancient Babylon, to the land of Judah to find this place. And many scholars reckon these magi, and ma- ma- the word magi in Greek is where we get the word magistrate uh, in English. Someone who, who, who's a judge, someone who's a professional at dealing with justice. We read that these magi were actually a part of a group of thinkers that the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament would have been responsible for because we're told in the book of Daniel that he was given responsibility over all the magistrates of Babylon. And somehow he had shared in the prophecy that a star would rise over the land of Judah and, and it would mark and, and it would uh, punctuate the place where the king of the world would be born. And these scholars, these astronomers, these scientists, their curiosity and, and their understanding of this prophecy led them to travel all the way to, to, to Judah to find uh, this king. And we know the story of how they come and they find uh, Jesus. Every year, myself and my boys, we have a tradition. And it was one of those things that we kind of started by accident way back when my oldest, who's now 15, was born. When we set up our Christmas tree, and we do a Christmas tree, and no, this is not my house, although, again, it is a great-looking house. Um, our Christmas tree is like this big, and it was given to us uh, 18 years ago. And every year, I think about, maybe I should get a new tree. You know, Maybe I should get bigger and better and newer. And then I think, nah, that's my tree. That tree's been with us since the beginning. And every single year, as a family, we decorate this tree. And let me tell you something, that, is not, and that sounds like a beautiful thing. And if you're picturing my children skipping along, 
decorating the tree and, oh, Father, you don't know my family. It's more like shouting and screaming and herding cats and kids hanging out with chandeliers and people throwing ball bells and trees falling over because we're normal. Um, but eventually, after all the chaos, the tree is up and we remind ourselves what a happy family we are. And one of the things that I do is I, I sit with my boys and I open the Bible and I bring them to the place in the Gospels where it talks about these magi. And I say, I tell my boys, I say, you know, the star... The star, a star is one of the greatest wonders of the world. A star illuminates the night sky. A star is, is powerful, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. But even the best and brightest star served as a spotlight for the true star of history, Jesus. And I tell my boys, wise men follow the star to find Jesus. And wise men still do. Wise men understand if we're open to God, if we're open to seeking Him, if we're open to searching for Him, we will find Him. Because really, at the pinnacle of all science and all astronomy and all biology and all the sciences and, and ologies is a sign that points us back to God. It's His fingerprint. And so last night, we as a family put up our tree and I shared with my boys that wise men still I want to encourage you this Christmas, as you think about trees and dinners and shopping and gifts and time off and all the things that make Christmas so special, when you look at a star, think about Jesus. Think about, think about the, the wise men who traveled thousands of miles because even though they were educated and even though they were wealthy and even though they lived in one of the greatest cities of the world, they understood that having stuff is not enough. And knowing stuff is not enough. There's only one person that can fulfill and fill the vacuum of our soul. His name is Jesus. Now again, this isn't just a Christian thing because the reason why Matthew's telling us a story back in verse 21 is because Jesus was the Messiah. He was promised to the world. When, when the Jewish people cried to God, Lord, deliver us, help us, save us, they were given a promise, many promises in the Old Testament Part of the reason why the Magi came was because they understood some of those promises. And this, this person will be given to the world to lead the world back to the Father. And so the angel tells Joseph that that person will be born from or through his uh, fiance. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now what's so special about Jesus? The word Jesus... Eshua uh, in Hebrew simply means the Lord saves. Jesus actually is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Same thing. It simply means the Lord saves. And even though um, we notice there's many other names that we could give Jesus, and in fact, Scripture describes God in many different ways. But in the first century culture, naming, when it came to naming your child, where in our world we name for popularity first and meaning second, right? I mean, you, you, how many of you have had kids and you Google most popular names, 2022, and you go, what are the top 10, and can we find something a little bit unique, and, and we're all about popularity, or it's popular family, we're naming our children after a grandparent, or a grandmother, or an uncle, or a father, or whatever, it's, it's because it has a degree of popularity, and then we look for the meaning to make sure we don't call our kids something stupid, right, so we, we kind of reference that, but for most of history, it was the other way around, it was meaning first, and in some cases, not popularity at all. There's some incredible historical names out there in all languages because they understood that the purpose of, 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 of naming 
was to essentially speak over them or declare over them or give them some sense of direction for their life that they would be something in their future. And again, that art is kind of lost in most of culture, but on Friday night watching the Late Late Toy Show, we were reminded of this because uh, on the Late Toy Show, Ryan Tuberty interviewed a young fella called Mason from Virginia County Cavan, right? I don't know how many watched this, but Ryan asked him what his dad did. And he said, my dad is a stonemason. <laughs> so this father named his son after the trade and profession that he works in. He isn't just a, a, a stonemason. He is someone who specializes in building houses out of, out of stone, out of, out of uh, old rock. And we see an example in culture of where this boy's name was chosen, not just for popularity, but for meaning. And when the angel tells us that God is determined that Jesus' name will be Jesus, it wasn't just because Jesus' name. It was because it was supposed to reveal his purpose. His purpose. The angel continues, you give birth to a son, you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will save their people, his people, from their sins. Now again, I appreciate that we uh, do not live in this culture and you know, we're not necessarily from a Jewish background, so what's going on here? Well, for most of history, the Messiah, the Savior, was promised, and most Jews believed this Savior would be a political figure or a, or a military figure. It would be like a, a general, a leader, who would lead us out of slavery, defeat the Romans, and make the kingdom of Israel great again. But actually, in actual fact, God's plan wasn't just to raise up a man or a woman once again to lead his people. God's plan was to send his son into the world to solve all the problems of the world in one go. Because we think about greed is a problem. Racism is a problem. Sexism is a problem. Prejudice is a problem. Evil is a problem. These are all problems. But if you try to solve these problems by attacking the issues, we don't solve very much. We must solve the root. And the root, from a scriptural point of view, is that in the hearts of men and women is sin. Sin is anything that we do or believe that's in opposition to God. You go, I don't really believe that. Yes, you do. What do you mean? Well, do you believe that treating people who have a different skin color to you as less than you is wrong? Yes. Do you believe treating someone because they're a different sex to you is wrong? Yes. I mean, do we believe greed and hatred and malice? Yes. But where do these things come from? And part of the Western Enlightenment lie was, as we get educated and as we progress as a society and as we have access to greater levels of technology, all these problems will disappear. Yet we look around the Western world and these problems seem to be worse now than ever before. Why? Because the root isn't in behavioral management. The root is in the hearts of every man and woman on planet Earth. And we have in us this capacity, this, this gravitational pull towards selfishness that causes us to act in ways and speak in ways and to do things to other people that are hurtful to them and hurtful to God and therefore sinful. And we don't have the power in of ourselves to solve it. There's no amount of meditation or, or a self-help book reading or a course that you can go on that changes the very nature of your heart. But Jesus is different. Because... What Jesus comes to do is Jesus comes to give life 
to the death within us. Jesus comes to set us free from the sin that, that just constantly pulls us down and constantly pulls us away from God. Jesus comes to break the chains, the shackles, the grip of these things on us and to deliver us from the power of sin. He isn't just a rabbi. He isn't just a great teacher, a great leader, a great philanthropist, a great humanitarian, a great thinker, a great leader. Jesus is the savior of the world. And one of the things that we, we must remember as we look at Christmas trees and lights and stars and nativity scenes is more than just a cute porcelain Swedish Jesus. Jesus is God's son. And he is the hope for humanity. Because the last time I checked, when you, when you need someone to completely transform your heart, drugs can't do it. Doctors can't do it. Money doesn't do it. Fame doesn't do it. I mean, you can have everything you want in life, but all those things do is amplify and make you more of what you already are. What power is there in the world to change a human heart? What power is there in the world to take my sinful, selfish nature and to transform it to be a selfless and generous nature? See, God wasn't coming to to simply deal with the fruit of the issue. God was coming, God was sending Jesus to deal with the root of the issue. And we're told in verse 22, all this would take place to confirm what was spoken through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 7, 14. That the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they, you will call him Jesus, he told Joseph. You, the father, you will name him Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. See, Christmas reminds us that promises, promises that God has given to us, which we have forgotten. Like God has promised things to us. If you're here and you're a Jesus follower, you have prayed things in the past and forgotten them. Or maybe as a young person, someone prayed over you and spoke God's promises over you. Christmas is a time we remember that God has given the world promises. One of the promises that we're reminded of boldly today is that when we seek God, we will find him and he will guide us. And maybe you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, you're not someone who has a relationship with God, and maybe you don't want to buy in wholesale to the whole thing, but you do need guidance because your marriage is falling apart. You need guidance because you know you've been torn apart from the inside with feelings of bitterness and unforgiveness. You do need guidance because you know that this grip is on your life. This, this thing, this gravitational pull, maybe into an addiction, maybe into gambling, maybe into lying or cheating or betraying. And you just know you, you've tried everything you can, but you can't break that grip. Christmas reminds us that God has given us a promise in Jesus, that he will save us. And that isn't some weird, you know, hanky-waving, super spiritual Christian thing. It's a very real thing. It isn't just a saving from hell to heaven. He saves us now. I mean, I, I share with you about how I proposed to my wife. I would not have lasted seven, she would not have lasted 17 years if God wasn't saving me every day, reminding me to love my wife, reminding me to humble myself, reminding me the path of Christianity is one of service and self-sacrifice and not entitlement and anger. And selfishness. And I was thinking about this idea of, of Christmas, you know, promises, and I was reminded of a story of a young fella 
who wanted a green tractor and trailer for Christmas. I mean, how many, how, I mean, how many of us understand, uh, are, are, can come up with a more Irish story than this? And I, I made Nova's right down. So it was, it was a day after Christmas at St. Peter's Church. And Father John was looking at the nativity scene outside when he noticed that the baby Jesus was missing from the crib. Uh-oh. Immediately, Father John's thoughts turned to calling the guards. But as he was about to do so, the thought hit him, what am I going to say to the guards? Hello, guards. Yeah, baby Jesus is missing. So he, he's pondering this idea, and all of a sudden, he sees little Cormac from down the road riding by in his green tractor. And in the back of the tractor was a trailer, and in the trailer was the figurine of the baby Jesus. Father John calmly approached Cormac and asked, Well, Cormac, where did you get the baby Jesus? Cormac looked up and smiled and said, I took him from the church. Which Father John replied, And why did you take him from the church? With a sheepish grin, Cormac said, Well, Father John, about a week before Christmas, I prayed to the Lord Jesus. I told him that if he would bring me a green tractor, and a trailer, I break him free and take him for a spin. <laughs> and so he did. Well done to Cormac. It's a cute story. And it's funny. But what God wants for us is more than just believing him for stuff. Like stuff is like the first level. Like, oh God, I, I need something great. But like trusting God with all of your soul. Trusting God for your future. Trusting God for your eternity. God didn't send Jesus into the world to be someone that we can make a wish for and hope for good things. God sent his son into the world to save us and set us free. And in the Christmas message, we, we find that as the Jewish people, as Matthew's writing from a Jewish perspective, as the Magi have traveled thousands of miles, we're reminded that God the God that we worship, the God that we serve, the God of Christmas, is a God that remembers promises that we've forgotten. And even though we've moved on, we thought, well, you know, I prayed a prayer 10 years ago, but, you know, I've moved on. God has not. God is faithful to fulfill every promise. And we live in a world right now, church. People are hurting. People are broken. People are searching. People are lost. And unfortunately, this great season that's supposed to be characterized by selflessness and generosity and outward focusedness has become something that's all about us. And it's created this weird culture of entitlement. As we look at you know, scenes of nativity, like baby, like baby Jesus in the manger, we're reminded that yes, Jesus came as a baby in the manger, but he didn't stay there. He grew to become a man. And he came to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And eventually he gave his life on the cross. So the power of sin. You may think, well, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. But you know there's a power. There's a, there's a malevolence. There's an evil at work in every human heart. It's at work in yours. It's at work in mine. It's at work in everyone's heart. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line of good and evil runs through, the, through every human heart. We have a choice every day to be good or to be evil. The problem is, no matter how hard we try to be good all the time, we can't try hard enough. There's this grip, this pull, this like default mode that pulls us down. That power, you might call it, that gravitational pull, that thing, that force, is sin. And if we're going to 
fulfill the, you know, live in the fulfillment of the promises that God has for us. We need to, that, that chain, that grip, that thing that pulls us down and keeps us down must be broken. That's why with the gospel, the gospel is called good news. Because even though our world right now has never been more technologically advanced, even though our world right now has never been richer, even though our world right now has never been more better off than it is right now, we are still helplessly and hopelessly lost. Because stuff and gadgets and fiber optic broadband and the latest Call of Duty and Avatar and everything else that our culture offers us is not enough. It's not bad. It's just not enough. We need more. And it's, it's so, uh, it's such a dichotomy, isn't it, that when people are asked which time of the year would they vote the most loneliness, that most people would say Christmas. The most lonely time of the year for most people is at a time when actually we're supposed to be celebrating that when we were lost and alone in our sin, God sent his son, Jesus, to save us and set us free. It's a proof, it's a cultural proof to us that stuff is not enough. We need Jesus. And as we think about the next few weeks as a church, speaking specifically now to those of us who are part of this church. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity this Christmas season to be individual lighthouses. Online, in work, on the street, on the bus, in school, wherever we do our life, we have an opportunity to share good news to people. If they don't want it, that's cool. We're not a church that believes in shoving anything down someone's throat because that's not good. If you have to coerce or force someone into something, that's not good news. Good news is, wow, really? How do I find out more? As we start this Christmas at the movie season, we want to use this as a vehicle to introduce people to Jesus. Because Matthew's gospel starts with Jesus being born in the manger as a baby, but Matthew's gospel ends in chapter 28 and verse 19 with Jesus having died, having defeated sin, death, and hell itself, and been raised again to glorious life, he turns to his followers and says, as a result, in response to my coming, in response to my dying, in response to my resurrection, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. What should, what, what should the natural and appropriate response be for us as Christians to Jesus' coming? Going. To put it simply and, and to kind of reduce to one main point, and then we're going to pray in a second. Jesus had to come into the world to save the world from sin. And because Jesus had to come, so we have to go. Yes, celebrating Christmas and reading Bible verses with our kids and, and, and having times of prayer and, and remembering the reason for the season, the cliche goes, all great things. But the best way we can show gratitude to Jesus at Christmas is following his example in why he came. To tell the world there is an option beyond what the world offers. It's not popular. It's not fashionable. It's not choice A on the Amazon wish list. But it can change your life. It can set you free. It can give you hope. It can give you peace. It can give you a love that you've never experienced before. I think the world's love is transactional and conditional. 
but an unconditional love that is transformative and changes us. Because Jesus came, we have to go. And it's not just true for Christmas. It's true for all the year, but especially this Christmas season. I want to encourage you. I want to lead you as your pastor into this mission that beyond trees and lights, Jesus called us to be a witness, to be living proof for what he's done in our world. Three things as we close and pray. Three takeaways from nativity. Number one, Jesus sees you. I don't mean in a weird, creepy way. Jesus sees you. I mean he knows. He knows you. And when you find yourself alone, and when you think no one sees and no one cares, Jesus sees you. He knows you. And I think what the nativity story should tell you today is that you are loved. Because I wouldn't give my son for you. I wouldn't even give my dog for you. No offense. I love my dog. She's part of the family. I'm sure you're a good person. But like, we don't give stuff that matters to us for people we don't even know. For people we might not even like. For people who might not even like us. But Jesus didn't just die for the Christians. Jesus didn't just die for the church. Jesus died for everybody. Those who don't like him, those who reject him, even those who hate him, Jesus loves them. And just like Saul last week, I was one of those people. I hated God and his people. And I thought that I was pretty secure in my way of life until I encountered the true love of God. It changed my life. It compelled me. Because he came into my world, I gave the rest of my life to going to other people's worlds and telling them the good news that there is hope for humanity. Jesus sees you and you are loved. Number two, Jesus saves us. I've already labored this one, but we need to be set free from all sorts of junk. Jesus loves us and we are loved, but we are also liberated. Like, understand, listen carefully. The other day I was doing my, my, my soaping, which is like journaling, and I'm reading the book of 1 Corinthians, and I was going through a particular portion. I was soaping, and it just so happened that that day I was talking about sin, and I was writing, and I found myself just writing on my journal about sin and my struggle with sin, and I wrote this sentence down. My sin is not my identity. What I do wrong, what I do selfishly, my poor choices are not who I am. I am loved. You are loved. And we're told that if you want, you are a child of God. You have value in the Father's eyes. God has promises and purpose over your life. And even though you find yourself struggling, you cannot break free from the hurt of unforgiveness in the past, from addictions, from all sorts of lifestyle choices. God, through Jesus, and the power of the gospel can set you free. You are loved and you are liberated. Number three. Jesus sends. He sends us. What's the response to us receiving this love and being liberated? It's to realize that you are living proof. People go, oh, I don't believe in the Virgin Mary. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe. Show me proof. It's right here. I didn't want. I didn't look for. But God loved. And God gave. And I opened my heart. And from that day to this day, God's love has been sustaining and strengthening and guiding and changing and growing and humbling and helping me. I could not be the husband I am. I could not be the father. I could not be the leader I am. I could not be the person I am if it wasn't for the love of God in my life. 
And I'm not perfect. Believe me. I'm not the best father or the best husband or the best leader or pastor. But I'm better than I would be without him. And every single one of us in this room who've opened our hearts to Jesus, you are living proof to the world that God loves, that God liberates, and that God still has a plan and purpose for us. So I want to encourage you, church, as we enter into this Christmas season, yes, presents, of course, why not? Yes, family meals or meals at friends and parties, sure, why not? Yes, decorations, nativity scenes, are not, sure, why not? But most importantly, let's not forget that Jesus came into the world to deliver the world from the power and grip of sin and that we as his people, we as his followers, are living, breathing proof of his love at work in our world, a light in the face of darkness. And we have been sent into this world as his representatives, as his witnesses, as living proof to tell the world there is good news this Christmas. There is good news this Christmas. Oh, you're struggling, there's good news this Christmas. Oh, you're brokenhearted, there's good news. Oh, you're grieving. Oh, you're broken. Oh, you're tired. Oh, you're divorced. Oh, your business failed. Oh, you flunked out of school. Oh, you've been fired. Oh, you're depressed. Oh, you got poor self-esteem. Oh, you've done something terrible and cannot be forgiven. Oh, there is good news this Christmas. His name is Jesus. He loves. He liberates. And he uses our lives as living proof to the world.